Happy New Year, everybody. I want to start with at least two tips. Two tips on how we can be better in the new year. Also, John Chris, the comedian, decided to get involved in, I guess, my lane. We'll talk about that and a lot more on today's Corey Truax Show. It is indeed a new year. It's time for that really terrible meme to be going around Twitter and Facebook and even Instagram where you say you, but ultimately, uh, if you don't change your habits, change your attitude, change your discipline, there will be no uh, no new you. The fact that December 31st turned to January 1, the fact that 18 became 19 is not going to change anything in you at all unless you take some positive steps to actually change. I really do hate that theme and meme this time of year. We have a lot to do on the show today, but first, my name is Corey Truax. We are dedicated to smarter, deeper, better talk about everything here on the Corey Truax Show. Thank you for listening on Christian Talk 660 on Saturday morning, or if you are listening to the podcast later, always appreciative that you do so. So I started thinking about the new year and some things I want to do better on my show and help model for others, and maybe you'll all join me for every other resolution you are making. You want to finally lose weight or quit that habit or end that situation you're in or find a new job or whatever it is. Whatever it is you're, you thought, hey, I would love to have this happen in 2019. I started thinking of ways in which we can be better citizens, not necessarily better Christians, but this is for everybody, for anybody. We can be better as people, be better to one another, If we practice these two things this year, that's where I want to begin, and we'll do a whole lot more on the show. So starting here, I saw recently a set of exchanges, conversations, on my South Carolina House of Representatives, my house rep, his Facebook page. His name is Neil Collins. I count him as a personal friend. And he handles his constituents, and then people who aren't even his constituents, he'll respond to some of them. And it was uh, the conversations happening there were indicative of a problem that we have more broadly that I want to make sure we, whoever you are out there, if you'll join me, join me in not being part of this problem. Here was the problem. The assumption of being right or the assumption of knowledge. Here's the thing we do in America. We assume we know everything. We are not first curious. We don't first ask questions. We assume we know everything there is to know, and also all the stuff that we've we've ever heard, it's obviously true, because I was told it, and if they say it to me, it's got to be true, because I'm special. And so we operate from that paradigm. I'll give you one example. There was a, a guy on that feed, they were talking about education funding, or at least partly talking about that, and he said something about international students not getting in, not just illegal aliens, but uh, international students not getting in-state tuition rates. Uh, he, he, he thought they should get in-state tuition rates, but never any scholarships. They should get no scholarship from the state. And then he said, you know, colleges have scholarships they give to school, give to students based on their race anyway. So that's really mostly false. I know I podcast. I'm, I'm in this really, uh, this luxurious world of broadcasting, but I have a, a job where I make a living and that's at a university. You know, that's one of the biggest myths there is. I actually have to deal with that with some regularity from all the people who have heard the very dumb rumor. Well, you know, there's all kinds of scholarships out there for people who are left-handed, who came from Native American tribes, who come from different races, 
where, do you have any scholarships that are on my particular minority group? And that might not even be a racial group. It's all kinds of minorities. Schools do that really rarely, and when they do, it's a token little scholarship. It's five hundred bucks. It's a hundred dollars. That one that is so very famous. There's a scholarship out there for left-handed people. Yeah, for like one year of college for like fifty bucks. They give away like ten of them, and like a, and thousands of left-handed people apply. Like it's one of those little themes that got into the the culture. Now everyone just knows it's true. Everybody just knows people get help based on their fill-in-the-blank. For this guy, it was race. Well, people are already getting scholarships based on their race, so why would we have to do anything else? The problem with that guy is he didn't ask himself, I wonder if I know everything or not. I wonder if everything, I'm not fact-checked. Just the stuff I assume is true, I wonder if it's not true. Is there any possibility whatsoever that the stuff I think isn't actually accurate? And essentially, none of us do that. You know, last year, I used that Eleanor Roosevelt quote a lot on this show, that it's the small minds that talk about people, it's the medium minds that talk about current events, but it's the big minds that talk about ideas. Well, maybe have this be the quote that can guide us through the beginning part of this year. It's a Ronald Reagan quote. He said it about Democrats, but let's go ahead and just make it about everybody. The problem with people is not that we know so little. It's that we know so much that is not so. I run into this all the time in conversations. People just come into the conversation. They say something demonstrably false. It's not a true thing. They just say it because they just know it's true. It's not that they know so little. It's that they're so incredibly confident that they know so much. And we would all do well to stop that. You go into a theological discussion, you think you know. You think you know what that other position is. Maybe instead of just assuming you know, get this. I'm going to blow your mind right here. Ask a question. Ask a question of someone who disagrees about how they got where they got. How, how they got to that conclusion. Maybe clarify before you just start working from all your presuppositions that maybe, maybe possibility. I know this blows some of your minds. Maybe you don't know. Maybe you should gather the facts before coming to your conclusions and making your arguments that we're all working from the same set of facts. So that's number one. In the new year, how about this? In every discussion, and even with your self-discussions, because you know, you, you talk to no one more than you talk to yourself. And no one talks to you more than you talk to you. You are your very own best conversationalist. We are constantly in dialogue with ourselves. When you make a claim in your mind, when you have a, an idea at your job, in your marriage, in a given friendship, or uh, in church, or any kind of partnership, and you've made a conclusion, start stripping that back. Start working from the bottom. So here's the thing I, th I assume is true. Now, is it true? Why do I think it's true? Where did I learn that? Where did I hear that? And I think a lot of us would find that the things that we assume in a lot of situations, we have no reason to believe they're true. We heard them one time. It's actually one of my favorite uh, comedi comedians, but you got to be careful with him. His name is Tom Segura. There's a lot of stuff in Tom Segura you have to just flip through, fa fast forward, or depending on where you're listening, you have to skip because... He, he gets a little testy uh, there for the, uh, for the believer, for the Christian. There's some stuff you just don't want to hear. But he's got a very funny bit about his dad who said to Tom Segura when he was like in his early 20s, he said the dad said to Tom Segura while they were watching a movie with Tommy Lee Jones in it. You know Tommy Lee Jones, the Texan tough guy. He was in Men in Black with, uh, with Will Smith. 
He's been in a bunch of other stuff. Old Country, uh, No Country for Old Men. He's been in a lot of things. He's a fantastic actor. And his dad's, his, Tom Segura's dad said to Tom Segura when he was young, you know he's gay, right? Yeah, Tom, uh, whatever that guy's, Tommy Lee Jones, whatever his name is. That guy's gay. And so Tom Segura, his whole adult life, the guy's almost 50 now, told just basically everyone he knew, anytime one of Tommy Lee Jones' movies would come up, he would tell that person, you know Tommy Lee Jones is gay, right? Yeah, that's guy, he's, he likes dudes. And then Tom Segura becomes kind of famous. Like, he's a big deal, a couple of Netflix specials. And one of his friends eventually, like, that he says that to is actually friends with Tommy Lee Jones. And he says, yeah, that's not, that's not true at all. Like, I know his wife and his kids. Like, he's totally not gay. And so Tom Segura just has this moment of realizing this thing, I, my dad just said it was true. He just said it was, and so because my dad said it, I assumed it was true, and I've been saying it to people for literally decades now. That's where we need to come back to. Maybe some things you think aren't correct. Maybe you don't have any reason to think the things that you think. And let's go back to the presuppositions. Let's go back to where we started thinking those things. And you might say to me, man, that sounds like hard work. I don't want to go through all that. It's totally worth it to be a better citizen, to be a better person, to be a smarter person, because we are dedicated to smarter, deeper, better talk about everything. But if we're going to get to smarter, deeper, better talk about everything first, we must have smarter, deeper, better thinking. And that leads to smarter, deeper, better talk. I'm going to have to take the second tip for the new year into the next segment, but let me go ahead and get started on it. So number one tip for the new year, assume you don't know Be humble, have some humility, assume you don't know everything, and actually question your presuppositions, question your premises of your arguments or thoughts, uh, and re-examine all those. That's number one. Number two, let's all be willing as adults in the new year when we we talk about ideas, that's, that's political, that's policy, that's a bill that might be up in the legislature, that might be at your job, uh, in your, in your budgeting, in your household, that there, let's just all admit, let's be adults and admit there are costs and benefits to everything. Nothing, I can't think of anything, is all benefit. And we, we tend, to, we, we, you're so myopic now. And we're so, uh, we, we put everything in this, in this bifurcated system where there's only yes or no, good or bad. We, we don't, ever find just the reality that actually, you know, that idea I have, I think it's the right idea. I think it's the right way to go, but there is going to be a cost to it. There's going to be a cost to the benefit. I'll bring you one that's probably not popular very much with, um, if you're part of the current Republican politics world, this one won't be popular to you, but we'll just take free trade for a minute. People like me didn't do a good job in the nineties. Now, granted in the nineties, I was I, when I went, when 1999 was in the case, I was like 13 or 14, 1999. So this wasn't my fault back then. But if I would have been an adult back then, I would have been saying things like about free trade and NAFTA. Oh man, it's, everything's just going to be so much more affordable. We're going to bring the cost down on everything and really just talk about all the benefit and really downplay the cost. But there, there's going to be cost. There will be factory towns in America that just shut down. There will be low-skill textile jobs. They're just gonna they're gonna go away. They're gonna shrivel up and go away forever. They're never coming back. Now, granted, I still would have been for NAFTA. 
I still would have been for free trade. It's still been a net positive for the country. Free trade is better than fair trade and regulated trade and tariffs. It's still better. But you know what's not fair in the conversation? It's to not acknowledge there will be costs. To, to, even to our good ideas. We'll take it to the left. It would have been much better for Barack Obama and the left when they were debating the Affordable Care Act if they would have just said, yeah, there's cost to this. There, it's, it's going to either raise the deficit or there's some taxes that are going to have to go up. And yes, th- there are going to be people who were previously paying a lower premium are going to have to pay a higher premium because now there's more sick people involved. Uh, and so premiums are going to have to go up. The cost of care goes up. And even if it doesn't go up to you, it's going to go up through the federal government, which just means more taxes. But so, yeah, there's going to be a benefit, and we still think we should do it. But yeah, there's going to be some cost that comes along with these benefits. It would just be better if we could all be adult enough to admit that our ideas, even if they're good ideas that we want to do, all of them have costs that go along with their benefits. I want to talk about that one a little bit more when we come back. We'll do a whole lot more, so stick with us for the rest of the Corey Act Show. for the first episode of the year for 2019. This is the Corey Truax Show. My name is conveniently Corey Truax. I'm glad you are here wherever you are listening. Thank you for doing so. And uh, always appreciated when you connect to the show. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or Snapchat. Listen anywhere on any podcasting app out there. And really, when you click share and just put it out there on your own your own uh, sh- social media feed, when you rate the show, when you give it a little heart or a like wherever you listen, in any way that you respond, it always helps others find the show, helps me a, a great deal as well. So thank you for doing that. So two tips for the new year. We covered in the first segment, assume you don't know so much. Ask some questions. Be humble. Have some humility. And before you assume the best or the worst of anything, just gather information. Assume you don't know everything. Number two is I want this year to be one where we're more honest about our ideas. That we might have that we like and policies that are good, but there is cost to every idea. The benefits might greatly outweigh the cost, but let's at least be honest enough to acknowledge them. So I gave you the example of NAFTA and free trade. I gave you the example of the Affordable Care Act, how that was very dishonest of folks on the left. Like, of course it's going to cost more. Of course covering pre-existing conditions is going to cost everyone more. But they were unwilling to say, well, yeah, there's a cost, but we believe the benefit outweighs. It was sold as there's only benefits to this. Well, let's just all be adults, okay? There's always a, a cost to every benefit. So in your house, we decide, you know, we really want to be saving more. We want to be putting more money away for retirement or for a vacation or something else. Okay, that's great. That's a great benefit. Well, what are we going to give up? What's the cost? Well, we are going out to eat six, seven times a month, and now we're going to do it twice. Well, that's a cost. You're going to have to decide if you if you want to pay that cost to be able to, uh, to to have that benefit. That's a small thing, but you have to be, the same way that you're honest in your own life, you decide, I want to get in shape. I want to have a better resting heart rate. I want my cholesterol to go down. I want my, uh, my body mass index to get below 20%, whatever it is. That's the benefit. Well, what's the cost? Well, you're not going to be able to eat the stuff you eat. You're not going to be able to eat the amount of the stuff that you eat. You might need to get in the gym three or four times a week. Well, that's a cost. Then you decide, is the cost worth paying for the benefit that you get? Our lives are like this all the time. You do that in your job. 
we want the benefit of more customers. All right, well, what's the cost of that? Well, we're going to have to hire good people. We're going to have to pay them enough to keep them. We're going to have to give them resources to do the job. We're going we're to spend some money on marketing, something like that. There's benefit, but yeah, you're going to have to pay the cost. But for too long, especially in politics, but not limited to politics, people have promoted their idea, their position, in a way that seemingly excludes the idea that there's going to be any downside. Like, there's not going to be anyone hurt by this. Only benefit comes. So just, I, while that is the concept I want you to have for the new year, let's ask ourselves those two questions. Hey, is there a chance that I don't know everything? Am I making the assumption that I know everything? Maybe I should ask some questions. And then when presenting an idea, having the willingness to say, now here are the costs. Here are the things it's going to cost you to get the good thing. While that's the concept, I want to put some more... Uh, flesh on those bones. Like, let's let's actually model what that looks like. So, for example, let's talk about capitalism for a moment. I love capitalism. It's one of the words I use first for myself. And I'm a fan of capitalism primarily because of what it's done for human flourishing. There isn't an argument regarding what economic philosophy and what economic system has been best for the most humans on this planet. And it is free market capitalism. It is that which emanated from Adam Smith's two books, uh, Moral Sentiments and then Wealth of Nations in 1776. However, people like me, who were super pro-capitalism, should be able to see folks who think capitalism has had its excesses and, and has had its downside. We should be able to say, yeah, there's a ton of benefit here. And the benefits definitely outweigh the costs, is what I believe. But yeah, there are costs. For example... Capitalism had the effect of expanding wealth in a way that's been good for alleviating poverty. At the same time, the expansion of wealth and then ingenuity and invention that came along with it is one of the reasons families changed. Just consider how things were 150 years ago. You mostly have your family on your estate, your farm, your whatever, most of the country was rural 150 years ago, and everyone was home. You had a bunch of kids because they were part of the labor force. You had a bunch of kids because they were going to take care of you in your old age. And dad didn't get up and go to work every day. Mom didn't get up and leave the house. Everyone really stayed at the house. Everyone was together. And so as capitalism advanced, and we started to have ingenuity and invention, one of the consequences when dad was first, dad left. Dad would get up every morning and he'd go away from the house and he would go to work somewhere because things were growing. Now, was that a benefit to that family? Did they have more stuff? Were they more financially secure? Yeah. Did their standard of living go way up? Yeah, the benefit definitely outweighed the cost, but there was a cost there. Is that fewer kids had dad in the home as often as the kids 150 years ago? And then it continued. We got to the 60s and the 70s. And then fully in the 80s and 90s, there was this idea of, well, we've got two adults here, two people who can earn a living. Let's go send them out and get, let's, let's earn some more. Let's get some more stuff. And so mom left. And so from 150 years ago with this very nuclear family, the idea of everyone being, being around the same house all the time, well, first we sent dad out, then we sent mom out, and now really no one's at the house anymore. And it changed the family. There's been a consequence for it. Now, the benefits of capitalism have outweighed the cost, but that was a cost. It changed how families operated in the United States. It does affect our soul. 
Capitalism without that first book from Adam Smith, Moral Sentiments, capitalism without morality will rot your soul. You become one version of Solomon in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, where you just want more stuff. And the stuff you have is fine. The house you have is fine. The car you have is fine. The stuff you have is fine. But oh boy, there's someone with more, and I want to get some more. And so capitalism has its vast benefit. It definitely outweighs the cost, but we should be we should be willing, people like me, to say to someone on the left who has skepticism regarding capitalism, yeah, there, there's cost there. Now, we believe the benefits outweigh them, but yeah, I totally acknowledge that there's a cost. If we can find a way to try to alleviate that cost with even more benefit, that'd be great. But yeah, without a doubt, uh, there's a cost there. We should be able to do that. Folks on the left, they should be willing to talk about the cost of their taxation plans. You might get a benefit. So let's go ahead and what the left would say the benefit would be. Well, we get to pay for some new social program. We get some new health care program. We're going to pay for something for folks of low income, but we're going to tax the wealthy. We're going to take some of their money, and we want this benefit that we're going to be able to use it on other people. Okay, I don't agree with you, but man, I understand where you're coming from. Can you now be honest about the cost? What's the cost? Well, every time we've done that, there's a slower economic growth. We get slower investment, capital investment in both uh, corporations and in startups. Th those diminish because now you're taking more out of the economy, and you're taking it to government. You're just going to put it, uh, you're going to run it through the process of taking it through a government, and then just hand out to some somebody else. There's a cost, at least. There's um, there's a cost. So take another left wing thing. We want to spend more money on blank. Fill, fill it in, whatever it is, uh, the healthcare program, housing program, whatever. Well, can you guys just be honest about the cost, though? That it's, it's going to have to actually run up a debt or a deficit, or we're going to have to tax somebody, we're going to have to take money from some folks. There are consequences, there are costs to these benefits. Another one for the left to consider. When you talk about minimum wage, can you at least be honest and talk about the cost to the benefit? Like, you think the benefit is... There is I, there's a lot of myths out there about, about the minimum wage, by the way. But you think the benefit is more people make more money? Great, awesome. Can you be honest about the cost that it's always led to fewer people being employed? That that increases in the minimum wage, especially out in California where Silicon Valley is, is leading to the proliferation, the speed of replacing humans with machines. You're just you're just convincing people with money to go ahead and move as fast as they can to unemploy low skill and low education people. That's all you're doing when you raise the minimum wage. There's a cost to your benefit. So you see a benefit. Can you at least be honest about the cost for folks on the Trump side? Can you be honest about your tariffs? There's a cost to it. Well, you're seeing it in the stock market a little. You're seeing it with manufacturing, especially car manufacturers in the United States. We are seeing it in uh, in some of the consequences of these trade wars with, with China. You might say, well, there's a benefit here because other, other countries misbehave and other countries uh, aren't treating us right, and so we're going to get a benefit. We're going to be able to get them to do what we want. Well, okay, that's fine. I understand that you're arguing for that benefit. Can be honest enough and talk about the cost for a minute? That it's not all, uh, it's not all balloons and unicorns and bubblegum and roses. There's, there's costs to all of these policy things. And I just talked about political items there. We could do that with, again, things in your job, things in your church, you want this benefit. Here's a benefit that we want. All right, well, that's going to cost us this. Do we have it? Do we have that? Do we have the ability to pay the cost to get the benefit? So those are two tips for the new year. Assume you don't know everything. 
Be humble, have humility, ask some questions. And also, be willing to be honest when you're talking about any idea you have that for whatever benefit you're, you're searching for, find the cost, acknowledge the cost, be honest about the cost. Next, a couple weeks ago, John Christ, he is a brilliant comedian. There's really only like two Christian, I don't want to call him that. I was going to call him a Christian comedian, but he's better than that. You know, we do this thing in Christian culture where, where we set up subcultures. I talked about this recently on the show. And uh, there's Christian singers or Christian comedians or Christian movies that aren't good they're, we don't hold them to the same standard we do secular art, but because they're Christian, we, we we want to support them even if they're not good. So that's Christian visual artists, actors, whatever it is. John Christ is a good comedian. He is he competes with the best, right? He he's a, I think he's up there with with Gaffigan and Dimitri Martin and, uh, and Brian Regan. John Christ is genuinely funny. Uh, now he does a lot of satire regarding the parts of Christianity that often need to be satirized, that often need some mockery, so we would do some self-examination. Uh, but he's genuinely funny. If you don't know John Christ, that would surprise me. I mean, he's a, I think he's well over 100 million total views now on YouTube and Facebook for some of his satire videos. I've seen him live twice. I'm going again in March to see him. Again, he, he's worth every dime you spend. Really, John Christ, I can't say enough kind things about his talent and ability. However, he went on Instagram and he got out of his lane. If his lane is comedy and satire, he decided to get serious and make a point, and he didn't do a great job, and it was a really bad point. So maybe he should stay in his lane because he's got some talent. Then then over here on the serious lane, I'll, I'll take care of that lane. we got plenty of folks over here in this one uh, if he wants to stay in his. Uh, so here was his argument. Over the last month or so, if you saw Lauren Daigle, even on this show, got some criticism because she gets biblical sexuality wrong. I to go back and retread that a little bit, no problem with her going on Ellen, but when she's challenged very clearly, hey, what's the Bible say about homosexuality? Well, there's an answer to that. It's not ambiguous. It's really, really clear. You don't want to say it because it makes you unpopular, makes you uncomfortable, but it's her response was the wrong response, period, bottom line. That's clear. And then there was here in Greenville, the pastor of a big charismatic church, Gave his wife a very expensive car for Christmas. There was some criticism around that. That comes around the uh, prosperity gospel thing. I have, I guess, some criticism of that pastor, uh, Pastor Gray, I think his last name is. Uh, But I'm going to hold that back. But there were a lot of people criticizing Gray for giving his wife his very expensive car. Uh, I, I I guess that criticism is something about materialism and prosperity. Okay, so and prosperity gospel stuff. So that, those were the criticisms being given out, Christians criticizing Christians for those things, or at least self-identified Christians uh, th- that are criticizing self-identified Christians. So John Chris goes on Instagram. Instagram it's, it was the Insta story feature, so it goes away after 24 hours. Otherwise, I would play for you the audio, but it doesn't exist anymore. And he just kind of roasts Christians who would criticize Lauren Daigle. He roasts, makes fun of Christians who would criticize this other pastor here in South Carolina saying things like, you know, Lauren Daigle has done more for the kingdom of God than you ever, uh, than you people who criticize ever would, or, or and this other pastor Gray has done all these other good things. So I, I would argue that case that they've done more for the kingdom than the people criticizing them. But let's, let's go ahead and grant that premise for Christ. They've done more for the kingdom than you have. Okay, fine, cool. That doesn't make them right. 
Doing a bunch of other good things doesn't make you right on a thing where you were wrong. That's not how truth works. Being true on 99 things and being false on the one thing doesn't mean you're now true on the one thing. You're still false. Lauren Daigle could be the best Christian on the planet, but if she has human, human sexuality wrong and she rep- misrepresents the Bible, you know what she is? She's wrong and deserving of criticism for it. That's how that works because we're all adults and that's how truth and logic works. This is satirized a little bit by Babylon B. I don't think Babylon B meant to do this, but they published an article that was something like Christian judges other Christians for judging other Christians. Like, it's a great headline. Because that's all that Chris was doing there. Chris is upset that Christians were criticizing Christians. And so what what did he do? He was a Christian who started criticizing the Christians who were criticizing the other Christians. So for clarity's sake, criticism is not in and of itself, a bad thing. You know what's bad thing? You know what, you know what ba- what's bad? False things. This, back to a theme of my life. We just have to find a way to evaluate things by true and false. If Lauren Daigle says a false thing, then call the false thing false. It doesn't even have to be a statement about her and her ministry and the things that she accomplishes. If a pastor does an irresponsible thing or rolls something out, in a way that misrepresents the gospel or something, which I'm not even saying Gray did that. But if, if a pastor does that, well, you just say it. Yeah, that was wrong. That doesn't mean we're going to shun them forever. But we're the people of the truth. That's supposed to be our thing. And so the, you, ha, you get to a little bit there of the, the folks who think the entire Bible is summed up in judge not lest ye be judged. There's a really funny meme out there that does that. It takes a, an editing tool on a picture of John 7. I think that's where Jesus says, judge not. And it blacks out every other word of the page, and it just has judge not. And the caption is, this is what some people think the entire Bible is. And that's true. And I'm not saying John Chris thinks that, but I am saying it's criticism of, of the people criticizing Daigle. That's where he's coming from. That's the heart of it. The heart of it is there's no place to criticize other Christians. There is. You know where that place is? When they're wrong. And you know what I am too? Consistent. Because I am often wrong. I often get my tone wrong, sometimes get the facts wrong. And if someone criticizes me for it, they are right. And these are the things we should value. We value what is right and what is wrong. We want to have some grace. We want to present that with some kindness. Nevertheless, for, for John Christ out there, who, again, I love, I'm still going to, I bought VIP ticket, or at least something, really, there's like one level below VIP. I still get to meet him, and there's like a Q&A, and I'm going to take a picture with him. It's going to be great. But he's wrong. He's just outright wrong about this. Uh, and so don't be confused. Where someone has spoken something false, you have every... You have every right to correct false things. Do it kindly. The Bible says speak the truth in love. But you do have to do the first part of that. Speak the truth. Don't just shut up. That's a, That seems to be what John Christ's opinion is. Is everyone shut up? No. If something is wrong, I'm going to have to say it because that's part of the command. We'll speak the truth. I want to do that. Then I want to do it in love. We want to keep those things in balance. We're going to take an early break here. When we come back, I have a video from Jonathan Haidt I want to play for you. Uh, probably going to talk about the board, some, a question on border funding. 
or at least border security funding. We'll do that and talk about sports when we come back on the Corey Act Show. Welcome back to the Corey Act Show. Thank you for sticking with us. Top priority here going to this final segment is a video from Jonathan Haidt. He's one of the most important authors in the country, I think. He wrote The Coddling of the American Mind. He wrote several other books. He's a in higher ed. Uh, he's an important voice on how we talk to one another. I think he and I probably disagree on everything politically, but he has some really good social science on why we're all so broken and hate each other and all that. Uh, and one of the, some of the work he's been doing is about parenting. And so that's where I want to, uh, what I want to give you. It's four minutes here of a video of him talking about parenting, or at least the American style of parenting and how it changed in the 90s. I will probably stop it uh, sometime in between. Uh, but here's four minutes of Professor Jonathan Haidt. And if you have not read the book, by the way, uh, Coddling American Mind, it's it's arguably the most important book of 2018. I think it probably is. It's totally worth your uh, worth your time to read that or get the audiobook. Uh, here is Jonathan Haidt. American parenting really changed in the 1990s. When I've, I'm talking about the book, I go around the country, I ask audiences, at what age were you let out? At what age could you go outside and play with your friends with no adult supervising? And I say, only people over 40. What's your answer? Call it out. And it's five, seven, eight, six, five, seven. It's always five to eight. That's what we always did. Between five and eight, kids could go outside without an adult. They'd get in arguments. They would, they would play games. They would make rules. Um, they were independent. They got years and years of practicing independence. I love this point because this, uh, it resonates with me. One of the more important parts of my development was being with other kids, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, and creating a game, organizing a game, coming up with rules for it. And it might have been football or basketball or baseball, but then organizing the teams and working through the social politics of all that with no one overseeing it, just learning by doing how do you do social interactions? How do you lead? How do you organize? I, there's not a lot of opportunity for that for kids anymore, but what he's saying here, I, I think it probably resonates with a lot of you and how we grew up, the independence we had to learn from doing. Then I say, just people under 25, what year were you let out? 12, 14, 13, 16. Nobody says 10 or younger. In the 1990s, as the crime rate was plummeting, as American life was getting safer and safer, Americans freaked out and thought that if they take their eyes off their children, the children will be abducted. Now this goes back, the fear was stoked by cable TV in the 1980s, there were a few high profile abductions. But it's not until the 1990s that we really start locking kids up and saying you cannot be outside until you're 14 or 15. We took this essential period of childhood from about eight to 12, when kids throughout history have practiced independence, have gotten into adventures, have made rafts and floated down the Mississippi River. We took that period and said, you don't get to practice independence until it's too late, until that period is over. Now, a couple years before you go to college, now you can go outside, oh, okay, go off to college, and a lot of them are not ready. They're just not used to being independent. When they get to college, they need more help. They're asking adults for more help. Protect me from this, punish him for saying that, protect me from that book. There's a very sharp change with kids who were born in 1995 and afterwards, surprisingly sharp. Uh, Jean Twenge, in her book iGen, uh, analyzes uh, surveys of behavior, of, of time use. And beginning with kids born in 1995, 
They spend a, a, a lot less time going out with friends. They don't get a driver's license as often. They don't drink as much. They don't go out on dates. They don't work for money as much. What are they doing? They're spending a lot more time sitting on their beds with their devices, interacting that way. It's a really good point and an important one. This is not just a screed against the kids, all the kids these days. It's an important point for parents, for those of us that influence young people and what we should be encouraging them towards. It's also a word to parents to not be as overprotective, to not overparent. The, the world actually is safer than when we grew up. I make that point fairly often. The world is safer in 2018 than it was when you and I were growing up 20 years ago. Every statistic bears that out. And what's, what's funny is parents think they're protecting their kids by having them stay in the house and play on the internet. Do you think the internet is safer than your local park? It's not. The internet is way more dangerous than your local park. The random people they might meet talking online to their video game systems, they're more dangerous as an influence than what might happen to your kid if you say, hey, you're going to go outside for the next five hours, don't come back. Go find something to do. Go make it up. Go meet somebody. It's way safer to send them outside than to put them on the internet, but we think we're protecting them by having them sit inside and play on their phones. These are the first kids who got social media when they were 13, roughly. They were subjected to much more anti-bullying content in their schools, uh, much more adult supervision. Um, they were raised in the years after 9-11. Uh, they, were, they were given much less recess and free play with no child left behind. There was much more testing pushed down into earlier grades. We don't know if this is for sure the reason, but they seem to have more difficulty working out problems on their own. The most common thing I hear uh, is that members of Gen Z if they overhear a joke, if they overhear someone say something, they'll, they'll get offended. By the way, if you don't know, Gen Z is the group of kids going to college right now. So Gen Z is uh, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, somewhere in that range. They'll, they'll get offended and then they'll go straight to HR. They go straight to somebody to file a complaint where previous generations would have either just shaken it off and just said, you know, jerk or asshole or whatever. I think there are a couple things we can say. One is, is you have to take charge of device use and social media. Before he gets into his uh, steps to take, that's so, I see that. That's true. People younger than me don't want to deal with the problem themselves. They want someone else to come along and deal with it. And one of the reasons, they never had a chance to develop that skill. They never had a chance to develop the skill of being upset with someone, expressing, that, expressing it, and then working it out directly with that person as they were kids and coming up through adolescence. We don't know for sure, but it looks like a two-hour limit per day is probably a good idea. Keeping kids off of social media as long as possible is a good idea. It's very hard to do this as one parent when your kid's friends are not limited. So you've got to talk to your kid's friends and all have a common front, all have a common policy, then go to the schools. Schools can solve these problems collectively in ways that individual parents cannot. Outside of school, go to letgrow.org an organization, a wonderful new organization, started by Lenore Skenazy. I'm running out of time here, so I have to cut this off. Lenore Skenazy was a woman who was called America's Worst Parent a few years ago because she allows her 10-year-old kid to get on the New York City subway by himself and go throughout the city to run an errand for her or something like that, which, again, 30 years ago was way more dangerous in New York City. New York City's quite safe now. It might have been risky 30 years ago, but someone would have done it. And, and so she's... She's a really big. Uh, she wrote a book called Free Range Parenting. 
she's one of the people who's most involved in the the idea of we're we're over parenting our kids, we're over protecting them, and that make that might make us feel good. But one thing it also does is doesn't allow them the time and ability to develop adult skills. Uh, so take that for what it's worth. It's good research, and I think it's some really good counsel as well. One more story here, and then we will move on to sports. There was, in my world that I traffic in, so that's the, I don't know, evangelical Twitter world, there was a, a, tw- a couple of tweets back and forth between some major personalities, and then there was some, uh, some reaction here locally to a very large church and a decision they made, uh, and I wanted to get some commentary on that. Uh, so J.D. Greer is the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, I was happy to vote for him at the Southern Baptist Convention in Dallas last summer. His church, one of the larger ones in North Carolina, uh, decided not to have church on Sunday. So that would have been December the 30th, and I think primarily because they were having like New Year's Eve services. Um, and so he put that out there on Twitter, that they weren't having any services at their, he called them campus locations. In response, Mark Dever, who pr- I would say is l- likely the most prominent ecclesiology scholar in America, there might be someone who has uh, more credentials, and maybe not, because Mark Dever has incredible credentials on the topic. Uh, but he is thought of as the ecclesiology guy. So if you're if you're wanting to study the church and what the Bible teaches about the church as an institution, uh, as an even organism, uh, he has he has a ministry called Nine Marks. It's supposed to be Nine Marks, not Nine Signs of a True Church. Uh, I love Mark Dever, and I love J.D. Greer, um, but Dever tweeted it, Greer, something I think is a little snarky about not meeting on Sunday. Uh, and then later on, Mark Dever tweeted a quote from the Baptist Faith and Message. So the Baptist Faith and Message message is a document that's supposed to be uh, the doctrinal uh, stance of Baptist churches, and specifically the Southern Baptist Convention over which J.D. Greer presides. So he's the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and so he would care, I think, what the Baptist Faith and Message, the doctrinal statement, says. And Mark Dever tweets out the quote that for the Southern Baptist Convention, Sunday is the the Sabbath day, the day of worship for God's people, both in public and in private. It's the day we encourage people to uh, to come together, as the Bible instructs. To uh, as every Sunday or every first day of the week is a a marker of the resurrection, a celebration of Jesus' resurrection. It's not just Easter; it's actually every Sunday that we come together to celebrate that. And so he puts it out there as a quote from the Baptist Faith and, Faith and Message, and J.D. Greer doesn't respond, uh, but it, it brings up, a, I think, an interesting question about canceling services on a Sunday uh, when there's not weather involved or something like that. And then again, there was this another church in South Carolina, a very large church, that canceled their services for a different reason. And so just one quick word on this. God gets to decide how he's worshipped. We don't actually get an opinion on that. So God, in his, in his word, in the Bible, he prescribes how he desires to be worshipped. It actually doesn't matter at all what you want. It doesn't matter at all how you like the music, how you want the lights, how you want the, uh, the room set up, what time you start. Uh, you are actually not important in this discussion at all on how God wants to be worshipped. He's actually laid that out for us. So specifically here, uh, God has designed, as the resurrection, after Jesus' resurrection, you can see in Scripture that it is customary, it is the custom of the church, to meet on Sundays. 
specifically as a marker of Jesus' resurrection. This is, this is what we're getting together to celebrate, and it also reestablishes a new, like a new Sabbath. At the, before Jesus' Saturday, or really it was Friday night into, into Saturday, uh, was was the Sabbath. That was the day that God uh, gave us for his, his worship, and now it's being switched to Sunday. Uh, so uh, whether you go to the epistles in Paul where he says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. It's actually, if you didn't know that, and you're a, you say you're a believer, this actually is uh, not a, this is not optional. Um, your church attendance, your being together on Sunday with the church, it's a very big deal. Uh, you don't get to have Jesus without his church. I've given the illustration before. You don't get to be friends with a guy, uh, but tell him how much you don't really appreciate his wife and how much you don't like his wife. Uh, and, well, this is the bride of Christ. Uh, you don't get an option here. Uh, if you're going to be part of Christ, you're also part of his church. They are. They, they come together. It's a, it's a combo package. Um, and so there is... N- this is, a I think, a better instructive happening to get us to think... How serious are you about church? Is it really easy for you to miss? Are, are you really willing to miss church if you're not ever really really uh, willing to miss work or anything else? Like getting your kid to a soccer game, to his baseball game, to her volleyball tournament, that is very important. You will organize your entire week, the family budget, the family calendar around it. Ah, but church, you know, we'll, we'll get there. I am not claiming... Those that didn't have church on that Sunday, uh, J.D. Greer's church or the one here in South Carolina, are not serious about it. I, if I would have been in one of those leadership rooms and this was something they were discussing, I would have challenged it. Like, this is not, this is not a good idea. It, it sets up a pattern where folks have reason to think that they could be less serious about being together on Sundays. This is, again, this is not a preference. God gets to decide how he wants to be worshipped, and you don't, get to de- you don't get to decide you don't like it that way. Uh, he has... The, the regular order the church has been given is to worship together on Sundays. It should never be taken lightly to cancel a Sunday service. Uh, this is not me being a fuddy-duddy. This is uh, the, the God of the universe gets to be in charge. We don't, and he has prescribed the method whereby he's worshiped. Uh, so all I would really challenge you with from those stories is to challenge yourself. How serious are you about being with the people of God on Sunday? I also don't want to uh, unnecessarily burden someone's conscience. There's are, there are very legit reasons to miss church from time to time with sickness and with uh, with, with work situations. It happens. Uh, it just shouldn't be our pattern, and it should not be our heart that it's easy to miss the gathering of believers. We are almost out of time, but let's quickly move on to sports. <laughs> We will do a shortened sports segment this week because we are without our sports correspondent, Heath Powell, who has some kind of flu, if you would uh, pray for him and his quick recovery. I noticed that we were watching the Clemson-Notre Dame game together at his house. Uh, he's typically with us here on, on Saturday mornings, and uh, he was getting sick. Like I could hear it. Uh, so really quick, just some thoughts uh, on sports for the week. Um, we mostly talk college football here. Um, I'm more of an NFL guy, but he's more of a college football guy. And I've noticed in South Carolina, college football is the – is the more popular of the two. Uh, Clemson utterly dominates Notre Dame. Alabama really does dominate Oklahoma. The score ends up being closer in the college football playoff semifinal, but uh, after Alabama was up 28 nothing, they kind of went into a cruising pattern, it seemed. Just kind of playing keep away. They weren't trying to run the score up. It was just, hey, we, we're going to win. Now let's just get out of here uh, with this win. Uh, where, where we sit in college football does seem to be, uh, these are just, there are two programs that are just high above everybody else. 
there's Alabama and there's Clemson, and I do think they're about equal. There's a small drop-off. Then there's Georgia. There's a little bit more of a drop-off. There's Ohio State and Oklahoma. And then there's just a giant drop-off, and there's a lot of mediocrity and then not-so-good teams after that. Uh, so these two programs, I suspect, we're, we're going to have another great national championship game between Clemson and Alabama, and we might get, a, get the same thing the next year and the next year and the next year and the next year. When you start looking at these rosters and the not just on the roster a bunch of freshmen and sophomore but contributors and key members of these roster are freshmen and sophomore for both of these clubs uh, we're probably looking at Alabama Clemson finals and or at least semifinals for years and years and years to come i mean the starting quarterbacks for both teams Alabama and Clemson they're going to be back next year it's in for Clemson he's he's got two more years at at the least i mean if he doesn't decide uh, to leave and go to the NFL after the third year it's even more so, in any event, uh, that's the setup. Here is how I see it going down. I think these are two e- very equally matched teams uh, that are now really dynamic. You know, the reason Clemson really couldn't do anything last year on Alabama's defense in that semifinal was Kelly Bryant can't throw the ball. He, he's not he's not accurate. wasn't a great deep ball thrower. Uh, the former Clemson quarterback who left this year for Missouri. So Alabama could sell out to the run, and they. They, they stopped the run, and, and Kelly couldn't really do anything on offense. Notre Dame just sort of showed you can stop Clemson's run. They were good enough to stop it. Travis Etienne had one long run, but if you take that one long run out, it was like 13 carries for 40 yards. Alabama's going to be able to shut down that run. And so then it becomes, can Trevor, can Trevor Lawrence air the ball out and just throw it all over the field? I suspect he can, and I think to, to a tag of Iola can. So ultimately, it's hard for me to make a prediction. I lean towards Alabama, but I don't think either one of these teams are winning by more than seven. I'm leaning towards a 27-24 type game, maybe 30-27, 30-24. It could go either way, but I lean towards Alabama. Uh, but hey, I've been wrong uh, many times before. Uh, so that's our shortened sports segment. That's uh, That semifinal's coming at you. We'll have some NFL playoffs, I'm sure coming up here soon to talk about as well. Thanks for listening to the show. We'll be back with another new edition of it next week if you would share the show with others. Until next time, everybody, peace and love.